Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmel. my co-host here, Dave Popovich. How you doing, buddy? Great. You? Uh, better until I saw those socks. Oh, <laughs> my Lord. So, it was one of those weeks, man. It was the holy yeah. kind of week. Okay. Oh, my Lord. Okay. So, unfortunately, there's a lot of people that are going to be listening and not seeing this. So, let me kind of describe Mr. Popovich and his attire. He's looking mm. really good. He's got a nice jacket on. Some. He's got a nice little pocket square going on. Some blue pants. Blue shoes. He's looking good. And then when you look at his socks, Dave... It's rolls of toilet paper. Rolls of toilet paper. For is, the holy week that we've had. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that sets the tone. Anybody wants to take a look at Dave Popwich's socks or any of the socks that he's been wearing, we'll definitely be able to post that up on our website at morethanmoneyradio.com or at least socks. to our social media uh, our, our team will definitely get that out. Cause, oh <laughs> Socks my Lord. can say a lot, buddy. You know that. And it was one of those weeks, man, because here's, here's the thing. Um, we got an interesting show. At the end of the show, stick around for the fourth bit, because we're going to be talking to a portfolio manager that we've had on regularly, but he has the ability to go long short. He can do anything and how he's positioning in this market. And this market is going crazy again, Yeah. right? Um, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, there's a lot of people getting back to traveling, too. This show, we're going to talk about if you're going to be uh, snowbirding again, if you're returning, what do you need to know? What are you going to experience? How's this going to go, right? There's some weird stuff going on in the travel industry right now. And just at the end of last month, a few days ago, we've, we heard uh, about the program called the Rent to Own program mm-hmm. the federal government announced uh, this week and how it will impact the economy. We're going to talk about this program because a lot of people are thinking about not only themselves, but their, their adult children uh, looking to get into the housing market. It's very expensive in many places across the country. Maybe this rent-to-own program might be suitable for them. Yeah. Uh, uh, and let's kind of talk about the pros and cons of that. So I think we've got a, a very good show today. Uh, we've seen, like you said, uh, a lot of volatility, which requires you to wear a toilet rolls uh, <laughs> uh, on socks, just to talk about how much of a you know, what kind of a week it was. Well, you know what I found most interesting about the week? It was, it was a fascinating pattern. On most days, markets would shape up in the morning through the futures markets, either positive or negative, and by the end of the day, it would be the opposite. We reversed, yeah. It was really interesting. It was crazy, right? Yeah. Interesting trading week. You know what else was interesting this week? I, I, I had a chat with uh, someone about the port, their portfolio, and they were looking at um, focusing on cash flow during this volatile time. Yeah, yeah. Now, just to paint the picture, there are people who have a wide variety of uh, risk tolerances and some have more than others. And let's sure. talk about the ones that do have that risk tolerance because they've experienced it recently and they're focusing on cash flow. Let's use dividends as an example where this individual is receiving, and I'll make up some numbers just to make it easier. Um, they've got a million dollars saved in their non-registered portfolio. Yep. It's not RSP, not TFSA. Yeah. Uh, they're receiving a 4% dividend, $40,000 a year, and that's what they're, they're living off of. And they're going to have to take some withdrawals out of their RSP, their RIF at some point, so on and so forth. But that's what they were focused on. As long as I can keep that cash flow, I don't care about the volatility. And so I asked the question, are you managing a portfolio or are you managing the dividend? And he looked at me as mm-hmm. if, he never thought of it in that way. And he goes, I guess I'm just managing the dividend. And I think a lot of individuals who have higher risk tolerances are taking on just the dividend management, right. not the portfolio management. Right. 
And I think that's a big concern for a few reasons. One, in, as you go through retirement, at certain points, you may need more cash flow than the dividend that's being exposed. Right. So where do you get that cash from? You'll have to withdraw from some point. Many say, I'll just take out my RSP or my TFSA. Mm-hmm. And that's, a, that's an option, for mm-hmm. sure. But then I increase the tax uh, possibility there. Mm-hmm. So there's a problem there. The second part of that is, um, what about if you're drawing at a time when the markets are down? Right. And what happens um, when the volatility is happening and the dividends get, don't, get, don't grow as much as inflation or don't grow with the economy? And there are a bunch of companies that have continued to do that, but there's risk to that. Or get cut. Or get cut. Right. Dividends can get cut, too. Well, you, you, know, you mentioned something. What's the problem with, so if you've got the 40000 and you're living off that 40000 in this example, what's the problem with that if the underlying stocks, say, go down? Yeah, so the, the problem with the, the cash flow, that's all you're receiving. It's kind of like <clears throat> having an apartment building with, let's say, 10 tenants. As long as they're paying their rent on time, cash flow's coming in. Right. But you're not managing all the other issues. One big issue in a portfolio, especially outside of an RSP or TFSA, is the tax implication. Yeah. At some point, you'll need to withdraw at a higher rate than the dividend. And that means you will be encroaching on a tax issue. Remember, there are three points in time where, you can, where you'll be paying Pay tax. tax yeah. right? Either you, when you make money, when you take money, or when you die or leave it. Yep. Right? Um, when, you, when you have those three issues come up, you're, you're basically kicking the tax uh, issue down the road yep. as much as possible, which is okay, but at some point you're going to pay that. So how do you manage the portfolio from a tax perspective? Yep. Yep. How do you manage the portfolio from a volatility perspective? And then how do you manage it from a cash flow perspective? And this is why we built the buckets the way we have, from the income bucket and the growth bucket. Yep. That way you don't have to worry about those two things in the same pool of capital. You can handle it in two different pools. It makes it easier for you. Let me rephrase the question because there's a specific point I, I want you to get to. What happens if the stocks are down, and, but the cash flow is consistent, but your income need goes up? You need more than what you're going to receive from the dividend, what will, and you're not pulling out of an RSP. It's yeah, from the what, dividend portfolio. What will happen in many cases, Dave, is that the individual will start to sell the shares of those companies that are paying those dividends to, to meet the lifestyle goal or cash flow right. that they need, and now they have less shares paying less dividends, right. and now it becomes a spiral situation that there's not enough cash flow. And many times, people will then say, I will reduce my lifestyle hmm. because the rent or the cash flow that I'm getting is lower. Right. And that's a big concern. This is the same problem that landlords feel if 100% of their cash flow is coming from rent. Mm-hmm. If rent goes down, you have a vacancy, same thing as selling shares, yeah. you have less cash flow, you're going you're gonna to adjust your lifestyle, and no one plans for that. No, no one wants that. So how do you avoid that issue? That's the big concern. Yeah, you know, his reaction was very interesting, and I think that was a cool analogy with, uh, you know, managing the building, the maintenance. That, that analogy you used on, on rental was a good one. And he, you know, he, he gave him food for thought, yeah. right? May or may not agree with it, but it's, it's food for thought. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I want to talk just, we've only got a couple of minutes, um, two or three minutes, and I want to talk about... Uh, um, about the recent volatility, right? We, we saw a summer rally. We saw a, a sell-off, right, going into the end of uh, August. Mm-hmm. Um, we start September. September, if you look historically, it's the weakest month, mm-hmm. okay? That doesn't say it's going to be a bad month or a good month. It just say historically people come back to work, and it can be kind of crazy. So there might be some volatility. Mm-hmm. But but the, the issues haven't changed, Yeah. right? The issues have not changed. And, and I thought we had some very interesting data on Friday with respect to that U.S. jobs report. Yeah. 
Um, and in fact, there was some interesting economic data in Canada as well to indicate that we're seeing some slowing. So in Canada in particular, I, I find it fascinating that some of the language is now changing amongst the economist community to say they're, you know, the Bank of Canada raises next week 75 basis points. Okay, that's the high probability outcome. And then what the change in the language in some instances is now, and then they go on pause. Mm -hmm. And then they pause because these interest rate hikes take time to work through the yeah. system, right? And so part of the fear, I think, as we go into the fall is will central banks make a policy mistake, keep going too far too fast before they see what the impact of these rates are going to be. So I think, I think September is going to be a very interesting month to see, to test central bank behavior, and policy behavior with respect the, to inflation. The big problem is not the policy itself. It's the credibility behind the policy. Mm is that many people do not feel the, the Federal Reserve in the United States or the Bank of Canada have been uh, um, as transparent as they could be or are forthright with what they should have been doing right. sooner. Right. And so credibility is now the conversation. Do we really believe what they're going to say? Right. Or do we believe what they're going to do is exactly what they're saying? Right. And, that, and that's why the markets are moving in so many different directions. We haven't seen anything different from our thesis. Right. You know, they're going to continue to raise rates until inflation is under control. Right. Full stop. Right. Now, if that's 75 basis points, uh, 50 basis points or more or less, it, that's not the point. The point is control inflation. Right. And in, until that happens, that's what's going, to, what's going to then dictate where we look at the future. Yep. And so why are people so erratic on these types of, of, of conversations is because they don't believe what the Fed or the Bank of Canada is saying. Well, and they all took a bit of a credibility hit, to your point, right? Because they got behind. And so those people that were saying, you guys are behind, and they didn't act, they've got a credibility concern now, right? So they're trying their hardest to work their way out of it. Um, we'll see how this plays out. Yeah, right? we're going to see how this plays out. Faisal, everybody's getting ready to go down south. They're going to snowbird for the first time, in many cases, two or three years. Yeah. Right? And um, there's some problems traveling these days. We've yeah, it's got, a bit different now. It's a bit different. Maybe right. that's the right way to say it. It's a bit different. bit different. You know, with all the stuff that's going on with the pandemic and COVID still around and so forth, what about how do you get back in case of another issue or right. how much money you got to spend or, you know, always people, when they, when, they, when they snowbird, they talk about, what about travel insurance? Right. And how do we get all that figured out? So, of course, you and I can't answer those kind of questions. Nope. We've got to get the experts on board from Goose Insurance Canada, our Canadian travel expert. Yeah. Omar K. when we're, gonna, we're welcoming uh, back to the show. Omar, thank you very much for taking some time with us. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's get to it. What do we need to know for snowbirding down, uh, down south? What, uh, what, can, what should people prepare to experience here? Well, you know, it's a, this season particularly, we're expecting a high volume of Canadian snowbirds to be traveling, particularly down south. Most of them haven't been to their places for the last couple of years. Um, you know, as Faisal said, that travel is a bit different and people do need to be aware of. I think two things that, are, that we're hearing that are top of mind. Number one, what happens if I get covid um, does my travel insurance policy actually cover me for COVID? Um, and the question is, unfortunately, it's a bit confusing. It depends. If you are fully vaccinated and you have fallen the, your um, sort of provincial uh, guidelines for vaccination, then yes, your travel medical insurance policy should be able to give you 
some coverage. Otherwise, you can consider actually buying a standalone COVID-19 insurance as well, um, which will cover you for COVID-19, particularly including quarantine and trip cancellation, trip interruption. Um, the other piece of it that, you know, that we hear a lot is what happens to me if I am actually stuck or if there is a big wave of COVID while I'm traveling in the fall and I can't get back home and I can't get back to Canada? Well, what we are recommending everybody is to ensure that they review their policy to have repatriation benefit in there. So what that means is that if you do get stuck abroad and you need to come back home, that your policy should be able to do that for you or your um, insurer. So um, those are some things that we're asking our Canadian snowbirds. I mean, of, of course, for everybody, pre-existing medical condition, um, particularly for the Canadian snowbirds, is a high topic as well. Um, you know, you've got to make sure that your policy does cover you for unstable pre-existing medical condition and your policy is not void, um, that when you are answering medical questions that you are reviewing them and if you don't know the answer check with your doctor um, just make sure that you know you're correctly uh, answering those questions um, so that's kind of normal business uh, but other than that we're expecting a very exciting fall winter season for Canadian snowbirds and rightfully so because they have been patiently waiting for the last 24 months um, to enjoy some sun <laughs> while we all freeze in the Canadian winter. One thing that hasn't been mentioned too much when we talk about inflation is the cost of out-of-provincial health care. Mm. The costs are rising. And so people may think, oh, I don't need travel insurance for the regular out-of-province medical just in case something goes wrong. Those prices have been skyrocketing in some places around, especially the United States. Mm -hmm. I think it's very important. When an individual is looking at insurance, Omar, what do they have to look at specifically? Because they're comparing your company to other companies out there. What, are they, what should they look for when it comes to traveling, their medical, and, of course, uh, the pandemic and COVID? Absolutely. That's a great question, Faisal. So things that I need to be looking at is um, essentially what are the limits what happens to me for unstable pre-existing medical condition? Do I have coverage or not? If my medical health questions are somehow inaccurate and or doesn't match my medical records, what happens to my policy? Do I have repatriation benefit? What happens to me if I get COVID? And all these details should be in your policy wording. And if you can't understand what's actually given to you, because there can be insurance jargon in here, always ask to speak to a licensed agent. Um, you know, Canadian snowboards do spend thousands of dollars in medical insurance because they do do, you, do understand the value of it, especially with inflation and uh, um, um, the rising costs of, 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 uh, of medicine across the globe, particularly in the U.S., it's really important that you review all these benefits and exclusions and ask those tough questions depending on your situation with anybody, any agency that you choose. With Goose, we have 24-7 uh, licensed agents that are able to help and answer any questions. But as Faisal said, this is not the time for people to not consider travel medical insurance, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and also review a couple of policies. Don't just go with one. Compare a couple just to make sure that you understand what the benefits are and what the differences are and which one's better for you. Omar, we have to leave it there. Thank you very much. Omar K1, who's a co-founder of Goose Insurance, Canadian travel expert. Um, I think that is solid advice. No better time than now to make sure if you're traveling down south that you get proper insurance coverage and understand what your coverage yeah. is. Um, there's a rent-to-own program. The government is trying to increase housing and affordability, bring prices down, all of these things, and they've brought out a new program. I think we need to understand a little bit about the details of this program. Yeah, we've got uh, Dan Fosch. Uh, he's with the Fosch Family Real Estate Company. He is pulled over on the side waiting to talk to us. Yeah. 
Okay, you know, he's, he's not driving right now, so this is, we want to make sure we get this attention, and we also want to make sure we explain this program. Uh, Dan, thank you for joining us on More Than Money. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So give us a rundown explain, explaining what this rent-to-own program is from the federal government. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's relatively nondescript, but they've sort of uh, indicated that they're, that they're willing to put funding towards a lot of the rent, existing rent-to-own programs in the Canadian market in an effort to help people achieve that ownership tenure um, and make home, home ownership more accessible for those people who, you know, right now are sort of at, let's call it the top end of that, that rental tier rather than, you know, making it accessible to, to all income classes. Um, and, and so that's why I think it's, it's been met with a little bit of maybe not confusion per se, but almost resistance and such that, you know, it's, it's not a perfect solution, right? And I think it's just one that'll exist within a, a broad spectrum of solutions that are needed to solve this housing crisis that we're looking at. So maybe just, uh, Dan, if you can, talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, the current environment in Canada and, you know, some of the background about why the federal government is looking at, at this program and perhaps that suite of programs they may need through time. Yeah, so, you know, the Canadian housing market has been considered among the most unaffordable on a, on a price-to-income basis for a while. Obviously, it varies by municipality. You know, real estate's very geographically based. Um, and But even with prices coming down nationally, I think we're down about 9.9% nationally from the peak in February or March of this year. Um, interest rates have, have risen at a pace that outpaced that that decline. And so houses are actually... On a mortgage payment basis, if you were to purchase a house today, it's actually less affordable for you to service that mortgage than it would have been at the same time in February, even purchasing at a higher price with a lower interest rate. And so the government for a long period of time and, and on, as one of their most primary campaign issues in the last election focused on making housing more affordable for Canadians. And this is among the solutions that, that they're proposing to do that. And this was within their campaign promises. They did talk about a rent-to-own program. They talked about a couple of other things, such as um, you know the first-time homebuyer savings plan, which we've seen released, um, and then supply-side solutions as well, which you're hearing Trudeau speaking about, you know, all of these homes that they're making an effort to bring to market. Dan, what do you think is the impact economically on this, this whole program? I think that, to be honest with you, this it, it, this is actually what I would call an inflationary policy, right? So it is going to increase the demand for homes by making it more accessible for buyers. You're increasing the number of people who now can buy a home, right? By taking this rent-to-own program, which is really tailored for people who haven't been able to amass the down payment necessary to purchase a home in their market. And so they need something that basically is a forced savings vehicle, which is the rent-to-own program, um, where basically they're paying a little bit extra on top of what they can already afford as a monthly rent, and that, that extra is being saved for them towards a down payment. So anyone who, who goes into this program to become a, an owner through rent-to-own becomes a, a buyer of real estate. So you're adding more demand to an already excess demand situation in Canadian real estate. That's how prices got where they were. We have more people who want to purchase real estate in Canada than homes that are available for sale, right? Would this program help a lot of first-time home buyers get in, or is this designed for people who may have sold, been out of the market, and coming back in? Like, who is this tailored to? I would say it's probably tailored more for first-time home buyers. I think that it's it's going to help people who are already in or have have you know started new household formation. They've gone out and, and created a home of their own, but they've done that through the rental tenure. 
And in doing that, you know, they, because they're servicing rent every month, they haven't been able to afford the savings. Somebody who might have exited a house, they probably have some cash savings and could likely afford to purchase a home as prices are coming down because they'll have a down payment. But somebody who's been renting for, you know, the past number of years might not have had that option because their wages weren't providing them with enough savings at the end of the day after paying rent and all of their other household expenses, especially in an inflationary world to amass a down payment to eventually purchase a home. Um, my one criticism there is that, you know, there's this, it almost implies that there's this implicit benefit that home ownership is better than, than renting uh, as a, as a security of, of housing. And I think that that illustrates to me, it's more of a symptom of the problem that we have a very broken housing system and that rental tenure needs to be better so that, that distinction isn't there. You see in a lot of European economies, as an example, uh, very low home ownership rates, Germany, Switzerland, et cetera. But at the same time, you see higher household net worths than you see in Canada. And I think that, you know, we're just earlier in our cycle, our housing cycle, let's call it, where, you know, we're getting to the point where a lot of European nations were hundreds of years ago, where lots of people wanted to immigrate there and there's an increase in demand for housing. And so eventually, I think we, we need to fix the rental system, not just try and push people from the rental system to the ownership system. I think that's an interesting point, right? I mean, we've known for a long time that the European model has been very, very different than yeah. what we hear, we have here. And, and it's a bit of a, bit of a Canadian, <clears throat> maybe a North American um, thing that success in some way is defined as owning your own home, yeah. right? But that would be unique, I think, to North America versus the rest of the world, Dan, as you've uh, appropriately put out there. So just, I just want to circle back for a second on the rent-to-own program. And I get that there's some sketchy details here, perhaps not fully um, laid out. But could you use an example, Dan, and I don't know if I'm putting you on the spot, if you can or not, of just how this would work based on your understanding, if anybody's listening and is interested in the mechanics of this, what does it look like? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, there are many programs out there that exist and basically the, the, you know, the government is trying to increase the success of those programs or their ability to have an impact on the market. And they've earmarked funds to do that. So what, what happens functionally in a rent to own situation is let's say you're renting a house and you, you know, it's worth $500,000, but you're paying $2,000 a month to rent that house. Now you need to, if you wanted to purchase that home as a first time home buyer on the highest loan to value mortgage that you can possibly get. So that's the lowest down payment that you can possibly get, which is 5% down. In that case, you would need to save up, I guess, $25,000, right? So to have that 5% down. Mm -hmm. So what, what the, the rent to own program does is they increase your rent to the point where it'll help you save that money over a fixed period of time that you would agree on with the rent to own landlord, let's call it, or the rent to own service provider. So if your rent increases by, let's say, $500, however long it would take you, $500 at a time, to get to that $25,000, you would be in that rent-to-own period. And then after you've amortized or after you've paid off that or amassed that $25,000 down payment that you need to, to pay towards the house to qualify for a mortgage, then that money is credited towards the home and you would take possession of the home. And, and that... The, the mechanics of that can happen in a couple of different ways. One is you're actually buying it at a, you're, you're securing it at an option to purchase it at that $500,000 price today. Um, so it's almost like an options contract. 
Mm-hmm. Or the alternative is you just actually take possession of it today and then you're, you co-own it with the rent-to-own provider until you have saved up that money or basically bought them out of the deal, let's call it, and then you own the, the home outright. Does that make sense? It does, yeah, Dan. It thank does. You. Thank you. What, what's missing in this program, or I think generally with these types of programs, is there's more to home ownership than the down payment. There's more to home ownership than just the mortgage payment. There's the maintenance, the property tax, the utilities. Uh, Dave, yep. you used to be a, a renter. I used to be mm-hmm. a renter. We loved being a renter because if something was broken, it's not our problem. <laughs> it's the landlord's problem. They have to fix it. The minute right. we became homeowners, uh-oh, we got to pay for all this stuff, especially when you have kids. Like, That's those right. rugrats, man, they're they expensive. Rent stuff, yeah. They're expensive. So, so I think what, what the government needs to do is not only help people get into a home, but help people stay in a home because that's the hardest part. It shouldn't be affordability housing. It should be house access, housing access. And that way they can stay in that home because there are a lot of Canadians over the next, call it, few years that will have a hard time paying for maintenance, upkeep, property taxes, and their mortgage payments on top of this. They're putting a program of that that doesn't really look at the full spectrum of being a homeowner. So I, I hope the government will will make some adjustments to the program to help people do that as well. Dan, we've run out of time here, uh, but I do want to um, thank you for walking us through how this works. If people are interested, uh, Foch Family Real Estate, they can, I assume they can reach out, get a hold of you and, and your team and they, uh, Absolutely, you know, they yeah. can, yeah, you can help. So thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Fizzle, we've got a terrific returning guest. There's lots of questions about, obviously, what's happening in the market, as we've discussed. But when you have sort of a, a, a platform that allows you to go long, short, commodities, stocks, bonds, all of these different things, what do you do? How do you position? Yeah. Right? Where are the opportunities? Where are the risks? Yeah. And Andrew McCreet's going to help us understand that. Andrew's been a, uh, a recurring guest of ours. He's a CE, uh, CEO and CIO of Forge First Asset Management. And we want to welcome you back to the show, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here again, gentlemen. All right. Well, why don't we just give you a, a bit of a moment to, to, to frame up the argument for us. So a little bit about uh, your thoughts on, on, you know, this year to date, and then we can talk a little bit about how we want to position going forward. Well, I guess I'll just use a four-letter word to talk about the year-to-date in markets. Ugly. E-U-G-L-Y. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you thought it was going to be something different, didn't you? Anyway, uh, I'll jump <laughs> aside. Let's face it, it's been ugly for bond investors, equity investors, and of course now the housing market is starting to get challenged, although long and strong in Alberta, and I think the Albertan real estate market is actually going to be an outlier. But we're not here to chat about real estate, we're here to chat about uh, financial markets. And, you know, Faisal and David, four or five months ago, uh, the media and investors seemed to be focused on the word stagflation. I believe over the last week and a half, two weeks, that the markets are finally discounting the reality that we are actually going to experience stagflation. In other words, lousy economic growth and sticky inflation. And so consequently, that come to realization moment is causing stocks to be really choppy. And I believe that obviously there's going to be you know, there's going to be rallies up and down, uh, but directionally, I think the markets have entered uh, the next phase of what is a bear market. Let's talk about um, let's talk about that setup. Uh, you and your team have done a very good job through the you know the choppiness that you've referred to this year, and in part because you have some tools 
that are available to you that not all um, managers uh, have to them. So I'd like you, if you can, Andrew, in as plain of English as you can, is explain maybe a little bit about uh, about what you and your team see and how you're positioning, not just to protect, because you've done a good job of that, protecting capital this year, but also where you think the opportunities are going to lie. Sounds good. So we one run what is called a hedge fund, meaning that we go long and short securities, be it stocks or sometimes bonds. Um, in, if an investor buys $1,000 of one of our funds at Forge First Asset Management website, forgefirst.com, uh, we might go out and buy $700 worth of stock, and we might go and short $500 worth of stock. So you get into what's referred to as gross and net exposure. The investor puts $1,000 into a fund. We go out and buy or go long $700, but we short. In other words, we borrow securities from somebody who we pay a little fee to to borrow those securities, and then we go sell those securities. We go short, and as I said, $500. So our gross exposure is what we're long plus what we're short. In this example, the investor has invested $1,000, and we're long $700, we're short $500, so our gross exposure is $1,200. $1,200 divided by the 1000 that the client invested is 120%. So you guys phone me up and say, hey, Andrew, what's your gross? It's 120%. Our net exposure is that same $700 long minus the 500 we're short, 700 minus 500 equals 200 divided by the thousand that the client invested that's 20 percent so we're 120 gross long excuse me we're 120 percent gross and we're 20 percent net long okay so that's what we do we go long and short publicly traded companies in north america in businesses that we understand large cap stocks we're buy and hold, free cash flow focused, value oriented investors. Termaline, CNQ, Microsoft, Google, you get the shtick, okay? Now, as we sit here today, we're short financials, we're short consumer stocks, we're modestly net long technology stocks. However, we are long Microsoft and Google and Visa, the, you know, the, the, the card company. But we are short yep. what I refer to as gap stocks. Long GARP, growth at reasonable price, Google, Microsoft, Visa. Short GAP, growth at any price, Kathy Woods being the poster child. Because we believe that uh, inflation is going to be stickier. Ultimately, interest rates are going to grind a little higher over the medium term. By medium term, I don't mean two months. I'm talking about the next, you know, 12, 18 months. And there's a strong negative correlation with the expensive stocks underperforming other stocks when interest rates go higher. So that's what we're doing in the tech space. Um, We continue to be very constructive on energy. Yes, it's been very painful the last two and a half months. But as folks in Calgary well know, um, the structural outlook for supply versus demand, 
looks good, and it's being that structural supply demand is being the impact of it is being accentuated by the world's mania or almost maniacal attitude to try and move to alternative energy. And that's just further going to goose commodity prices higher. So we like energy a lot. Andrew, I want to I want to ask this question because the average investor, the average individual investor out there has a couple of things at their at their disposal right now with what's going on in the markets. They can participate and ride through this this volatility or they can sit on the sidelines and and just wait till they have some sort of signal that tells them to get back in. Now, the, the, the jury is still out of what a lot of investors are doing. They're still debating about this stuff in their heads or with their advisors. When you look at how you're invested, there is opportunity. But how long do you think this volatility is going to last before we start seeing that next run up in the markets? Because we do know that almost 80% of the times the S&P 500 is a positive rate of return. 20% of the time it's not. So when does the, the average investor have to hang in there for until they start to see things turning positive for them? Uh, I think it's going to be a while. If you look at the really big picture, think back 42 years ago, 1980, when inflation and interest rates were 20%. um, And the marginal tax rate in the United States was 75 to 80%. And of course, the boomers were just getting married. And then over the next 40 years, we've seen, you know, the boomers has lots of kids. We've seen technological revolution. We've seen China begin to enter the global economy, but now it's a mature economy and it's starting to go the other way. As our tax rates, as our interest rates, as is the supply and demand for credit. So I believe we've had, you know, in effect, a 40-year bull market that is going to begin that has begun to start to reverse itself. So I think markets are going to be choppy for a while. To answer the first part of your question, I should say should add because I believe inflation is going to stay sticky, growth is going to stay lousy, and as a result, PE multiples or the valuation accorded to security, whether it's a stock, a bond, or even a house. Uh, generally speaking, notwithstanding that I believe that you know Alberta and Calgary specifically can be a bit of an outlier, our outlier because of the energy market, um, I think valuations still have some room to fall as we move into the recession that I first quote unquote predicted um, loosely, since I'm not an economist. In my January 2022 market commentary, I write a monthly commentary that your listeners can find on my website forgefirst.com. I think we're, at, we're moving towards that recession. And so the next shoe to drop is negative earnings revisions, where companies cut their outlook for profits. That hasn't happened yet. It will happen. And on average, since World War II, uh, during a recession, earnings per share forecasts are cut by, on average, 14%. So I still think there's you know, more to go on the downside from that perspective. With respect to the individual investor, you know, myself as, you know, the head of Forge First has had the pleasure of being a client of you guys for several years now. I remember you due diligence me for three years before we started doing business four or five years ago. Obviously, while I might have been a tad frustrated by the length of the time, I'm obviously at the same time was very respectful about how you work darn hard 
for your clients, making sure you're comfortable with me, asking me a lot of questions, uh, you know, Delta and Beta and Alpha and all that kind of stuff, following me, watching me. Um, and you do that because having got to know the both of you very well, you're very focused on sort of meeting the holistic needs of your individual clients. You know, you've got some really rich folks and then you've got some average folks. You've got everything, right? And those folks, those two types of folks, if we can, you know, put it into two buckets, your, 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 your client base, um, they have different needs, different fears, different desires. And so if you're much more focused on capital preservation, you unfortunately have to absolutely accept a lower return potential because there's greater risk out there because where we are in the market cycle because of inflation and growth and interest rates and all that stuff. So if you're more focused on growth, then you can take more risk, but there absolutely is going to be more risk today because mm -hmm. of those same, same variables. So the to summarize, notwithstanding me going on, Faisal, um, the short answer to the first half of your question is it's a function of the risk tolerance of your clients. You know, after the last few years when it's like, oh, I can make 10 to 12% a year, I don't have to worry about it. Not anymore. You're going to be lucky to make 5 or 6%. And therefore, risk matters a heck of a lot more than it did before. Mm -hmm. Andrew, we've got to leave it there. Unfortunately, uh, we've run out of time, but we'll have you, of course, back on in the not too distant future. But I want to thank you for taking the time to, to spend with us today and, um, in, and I think walk through some examples of some of the tools at your disposal that I think a lot of people would be unaware of. Thank you very much, David and Faisal. And you guys, uh, I look forward to chatting with you again, and I look forward to seeing you in Calgary. Yep, sounds great. Be joined by Andrew McCreet, CEO and CIO, Forge First Asset Management. Okay, my friend, we gotta we got to take all of this, this wealth management idea and the economy and everything else, and put it into a program that helps people live their their retirement dreams. Right, and we'll be doing that on <clears throat> Tuesday, September 20th, 7 p.m., live in person at the Four Points Sheraton Hotel. Go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register. Thanks uh, for sticking around uh, for our show. It's another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. We look forward to chatting with you next week. On behalf of Faisal and myself, we'll see you then. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.